0: This is Nicole Butler with Fresno Madera Medical Society Central Valley Physicians Podcast. Today I'm here with Dr. Alan Birnbaum. He is a neurologist here in town, and our subject today is to talk about migraines, something which I'm pretty familiar with myself, and I'm sure a lot of other people in the valley suffer from them as well. So welcome, Dr.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to come and perhaps spread a little knowledge, however thinly it might be
0: oh, no i 'm sure it'll be great so let 's get started So you know one of my my first questions is how how many people really do suffer from migraines?
1: This is a very common problem. It is so common that as i 'm setting up my yearly roster of lectures and educational sessions for our new crop of internal medicine residents at St. Anne's Medical Center, this is going to be our very first topic. The reason being is if you look at the overall population during adult life, and actually starting before that, 15% of women will suffer from migraine at some point during their life, and 5% of men. So in general, we're talking about 10% of the population. Many people feel this is the most common reason why people end up in a neurologist's office.
0: Wow. I didn't realize it was that many. So, you know, being a woman myself, um, there's, I've, I've had migraines a lot. Um, as I get older, I see that I get more and more every year. Are there certain um, things that can trigger uh, a headache or um, that could be the onset of a migraine?
1: There are various triggers that people look for. Sometimes these are foods. Sometimes these are Smells, I have patients who have been unable to work in certain uh, places of business or offices because certain smells bother them. Many patients find that co-workers have perfumes and such that are triggers. There are also certain foods, classically certain types of cheese, aged cheese may be a problem. Among things that you drink, classically red wine for some people is a trigger. This is no comfort whatsoever, of course, to my good friend uh, Daphne, who is now still having headache in her early in her mid 70s and she is sensitive not to red wine but to white wine so whenever we go out and uh, sample wine uh, she goes very lightly on the white and much prefers the red because that does not bother her
0: well, that answer did not make me happy one bit. Two of my favorite things in life. <laughs> um, okay, so what about living in the valley? Is there anything in the valley that, that you have seen or that could potentially give somebody um, more migraines than if they, they, they lived on the Central Coast? I do
1: think that there are some people who have allergies to pollen, allergies to mold, whatever as a potential trigger. I haven't looked at this seriously, but certainly if someone had both migraine and an allergic problem, uh, consulting an allergist to see if they could make some progress on the la- on that would, would probably help. Uh, we've got many fine allergists here in the Central Valley, starting with, of course, our former uh, Fresno Med- our Medical Society president, Alaminian, but there are others, Praveen uh, Badiga, uh, and it's a good place to be an allergist. You can make quite a living here.
0: Absolutely. Those are two um, great allergists in town as well. Um, there are many more, but those are the two that, that I know the best. Um, so are there different ty- types of migraines, for example? Or are there different portions of your head that kind of um, are? are they classified in different ways?
1: Right. I think that we look at probably four different types of migraine as a basic breakdown, the first is common. Well, what do we mean by common? Common means that the episode is headache, typically with often nausea, sensitive to lights, perhaps sensitivity to sound, but no specific warning except the pain itself coming on. Sometimes people have neck pain before the headache. Uh, that's about 80% of people who suffer from migraines, simply common migraines. Then we get classical migraine. Many people think of this as migraine. In fact, it's only about 20%. These are people who get very characteristic, specific, positive visual disturbances as a prodrome to the migraine can last for a few minutes, can last for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, may last during the episode, although that's much less common. Typically, this is a binocular phenomenon. People actually have the visual disturbance in not one eye, both eyes, although they may perceive it as being to one side because it's in the visual field of both eyes. People can see sparkling lights. They can see geometric patterns. They may see blobs. They may see things that uh, look like a paisley tie, for all we know, things that look like amoeba. And these are often the warning that the headache is coming on. This can be important because for some people, that gives them a warning, that gives them a chance to use preemptive treatment. Beyond that, we have a small percentage of patients, about 5%, who on occasion will have what we call complicated migraine. With complicated migraine, the prodromal event is not just a visual disturbance, but it may be other neurological disturbances. It may be numbness, weakness on one side of the body, It may be aphasia, language disturbance. Sometimes you just cannot tell, particularly when this has not been previously established. And in fact, last week when when I was on call at St. Agnes, we had a a young woman come in in her 50s who had, for all the world, looked like an early onset stroke. We wanted to intervene. We didn't want her to have a permanent deficit. We went ahead and used a clot-busting drug but as we further evaluated her, looked at all the test results and everything, realized that, in fact, she'd had an episode of complicated migraine. And, in fact, she'd had a history of migraine going back a number of decades. So in the future, we'll be very careful with someone like that. We don't want to give $8,000 worth of medication for, for, for the wrong disorder. Finally, there's a further variant of complicated migraine called vertebrobasilar migraine, in which there are focal neurologic symptoms, but these implicate the lower part of the brain, the brain stem. Classically, you see vertigo, you might get double vision, you could get dysarthria, you could get ataxia, loss of balance. This often in particular affects younger patients. And if I had not mentioned it previously, unfortunately, there are patients who are not even teenagers, patients who are five, six, seven, eight years old, who clearly get migraine, and these headaches are not always recognized by their pediatrician. I don't think that would be true for, you know, really good pediatricians who have become a familiar of this, who have referred patients to pediatric neurologists, but there often is a misconception that, oh, it's nothing, just have a a glass of warm juice and you'll be fine. That doesn't help a little kid who's in a dark room with a bad headache and vomiting.
0: Wow, that's that's, a... I can not imagine somebody so young because they can't typically explain to a parent what exactly is going on. So that could be scary for for a parent for sure. So, you know, as somebody that that gets migraines, should should somebody, should you keep track of them? Should you keep like a a migraine diary? So if you do have an episode where you do have to go to the hospital, you know, you can share that with them. Mm
1: I find that keeping a headache diary is exceptionally useful for a patient who wants to improve, who wants to work closely with their physician. It's like golf. Unless you keep a scorecard and figure out what your handicap is, you won't make any progress. It's very useful to know when the headache occurred, how long it lasted, what was the response to treatment, so that as you have periodic visits with your family physician or your neurologist or your headache specialist, that that they know and you can determine, is the treatment working? Is the intervention working? Maybe there are triggers that I've come up with that I realize that I can help, but a good record makes so much difference when you sit down for a visit with a position, that might only be 15 minutes. Having facts and figures in front of you helps everybody, helps you make progress.
0: Okay, so let's say, I'll give you an example. For my migraines, I I can feel them coming on. I know that I I get to a point where where I have a mild headache, then that headache gets a little worse. And then if I don't do something pretty quick, (laughs) it's going to turn into a migraine. This is usually over the course of two, day, two days. I'll, I'll let it go. Are there certain things that, that someone can do when they have a early onset of a headache and it transitions into a worse headache? Is there something that they can do to prevent the migraine?
1: That's a sort of interesting story you have because you're talking about a prodrome that is a little bit longer than what we commonly see as a prodrome for migraine. Most migraine prodromes, I would say, are... 20 to 30 minutes, maybe less than that. For people who can recognize, who have common migraine, that an episode is building up, that is when some of the preventive treatments can be useful. In the past, we tended to use drugs that contain the compene ergotamine. classical drug, which is still on the market, is cafregod, which is one milligram of ergotamine plus 100 milligrams of caffeine. And that often will help prevent an episode from building up completely. However, we now use fewer and fewer of the ergotamine compounds, one that we used to use that was sublingual ergotamine. Ergomar, I don't think, is even on the market. So what has happened, I would say, over the last 20 years is we've made increasing use of a new class of drugs. Well, it's not new. It's really very well-established and highly valuable. These are drugs called tryptans, And tryptans are drugs which are very specific for the pathophysiology of migraine, and in many people, will cut an episode dead in its tracks. So for a person who might have an episode that classically would last eight hours, last overnight until they can get to sleep, in many patients, properly dosed and timed triptans will allow the headache to recede and go away within two hours and often less than that. The original triptan on the market was a drug called sumatriptan, marketed widely for a number of years as imitrex and still widely available. Uh, This drug uh, typically is given as an oral medication. There's a low dose, 25 milligrams, basically for use in pediatrics. And as I mentioned, unfortunately, we need it in pediatrics for certain patients. The usual adult dose is 50 milligrams. uh, Helps about half patients, another half have to go to 100 milligrams. And this is used during the early phase of the headache in order to keep it from proceeding. Sometimes the dosage will be repeated. Uh, Sumatriptan also comes in several other forms. There is a nasal spray, which some people use and other people hate because it has horrible taste. But especially valuable is the injectable form of which is sometimes 4 milligrams to perhaps 6 milligrams. Several different manufacturers make this. These typically come in pre-filled syringes. These are extraordinarily useful for patients who develop migraine during the early morning hours when they're asleep and they're woken up by a full-fledged migraine. They try and take their oral medication, triptan or whatever. At that point, they're nauseated. They can't absorb the medication. The oral triptan, regardless of how good it is under other circumstances, just doesn't work. So for those patients, providing them with some syringes of the pre-filled, Sumatriptan can be very valuable.
0: Now, when you say syringe, is it similar to like an EpiPen or are they actually like like an insulin type?
1: Correct. Uh, It is much more like these are pre-filled syringes, somewhat like the EpiPen. These are single dose. Uh, meant to be given by a layperson in the field. Most people don't need to take them with them to work because the susceptible time is the early morning hours. So people simply keep these, you know, a few of these stored in the refrigerator at home. So even if they're taking an oral trip down with them during the day, the time when these drugs really are helpful is typically at home and you wake up in the early morning hours.
0: Are there, are there a lot of side effects or any other side effects that would you would point out if you are taking those?
1: usually the side effect that causes some problem is chest tightness. Many people are concerned that this is symptomatic coronary artery disease. It probably is not. It's probably from something else. But in some people, this is enough of a problem. They cannot use these drugs, or they may need to try a different triptan. As a matter of fact, we now have about six different triptans on the market, almost all of which now have become generic medications. Uh, the I will give the trade names of some of the others, which I've used over the years. There's a drug called Maxalt, which also comes in a form that dissolves beneath the tongue, called Maxalt MLT, very useful for someone who's nauseated. It's a drug called Relpax. There's a drug called Zomeg, or Zomotriptan, which also comes in a nasal spray, which I am told by patients who have used it is the better tolerated form of the nasal spray. Uh, there are two somewhat longer-acting drugs. One is called Frova, <coughs> Frova and then emerge almotriptan. Uh, These have longer durations of action and can be useful in certain selected uh, situations, particularly patients who get migraine under uh, specific predictable circumstances, such as the syndrome that people call catamenial migraine. These are the form of monthly migraine that women unfortunately get afflicted with, typically as the hormonal surges and fluctuations leading to menses become active. And these can be a trigger for people. And some of those people, by using a single dose of eMERGE, can reduce the number of uh, episodes of migraine that actually emerge.
0: So for somebody that has never had a migraine, I always tell them if you've, never, if, if you've had a migraine, you know, because the pain is immense. Is there any type of over-the-counter drugs that can be strong enough that could ease that pain? Or what should they do if somebody that has not experienced a true migraine in the past, what should they do if they get one?
1: I think with new-onset migraine, you really should consult at least your family physician. It is worthwhile always making sure that this is the diagnosis and you're not missing something. Sure, most episodic headache is of severity is going to be migraine, but you want to consult a physician particularly if it's the first time to make sure it's not something else. We're always concerned about missing a patient who has the quote worst headache of their life, unquote, and actually has something substantially different, which would be a subarachnoid hemorrhage or some other structural neurological problem. So consulting a physician is always a good idea not everybody needs to see a neurologist, but a significant number of patients will then get referred on to a neurologist for further evaluation and helping direct a further plan of treatment.
0: Okay. Um, so over the weekend, I was reading um, something about a new drug called, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, is Emovig. And my understanding, this is a, a brand new drug that is, is out there. Um, you talked about some of the other prescriptions that can help. Do you know much about this drug?
1: I do not know very much about this drug. I do not run a headache specialty practice. I do keep track of these things. What I can tell you about Amavig is this is a drug which is going to be useful for a relatively small percentage of patients. If you look at the frequency of migraine, typical frequencies are someone who gets an episode maybe once or twice a year, maybe every couple of months, possibly up to once a month. Those patients are probably very nicely and well-treated with triptan medications that they have available. However, there are patients in whom headache frequency is greater than that. There are patients who get a headache a week, and then you get the very unfortunate patients who get multiple episodes of headache a week, which can be extremely debilitating and function impairing. For those patients, there is a group of medications which you call prophylactic agents, drugs which if they work, will significantly reduce the frequency of migraine back down to where headaches that break through can be treated with triptan. The common drugs that are used for this are a well-established generic medication called propanolol, either as a short-acting or a long-acting drug, very effective, uh, incredibly inexpensive. uh, Cost for a prescription is typically less than the copay. There is a drug called... Valproate, or divalproex. This is a drug which works very well in lowering migraine frequency for many people. Has some side effects, however. May cause some tremor in some people. Some people have some cognitive dulling. Uh, can promote some weight gain. Very valuable drug, but not for everybody. Actually, the drug used most commonly to reduce migraine frequency is a drug called topiramate. Originally Topamax. Uh, now there is a long-acting form, I think, called Trokendi XR. And this is probably the most commonly used drug, and when effective, some of these drugs will lower migraine frequency by 75%, and with that, the triptan that the patient has will take care of the rest of the drugs. However, not everybody tolerates the prophylactic medications. Not everybody gets benefit from them. The answer to that in recent times has been use of something called Botox. Botox is a neuromuscular toxin, a blocking agent. Most people think of this in terms of its use for cosmetic purposes, uh, taking the wrinkles out so you look 10 years younger. Well, in fact, Botox has a wide range of uses for significant neuromuscular disorders. And one of them is that in selected patients, you can use a series of Botox injections to lower Headache frequency. And there's a steep curve, however, to qualify for it. You have to have what we call chronic migraine, in which you have at least 15 episodes of headache a month. These are people who are really pretty miserable, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, And the treatment with the Botox, which is available through several different local neurologists and pain specialists, people I can mention include Praminder Bhatia, MD, Kurt Miller, MD, uh, several others. I'm sure that downtown, Ernestina Saxon, who's with uh, Central California Neuroscience Center, knows how to use this. I don't happen to do it myself because I don't have enough patience. The problem with Botox is, A, it's relatively expensive, and B, the injections are not a single injection, but it is a series of 31 injections to various parts of the head and neck. And that has to be repeated every three to four months. Sometimes the first course doesn't make a difference. Sometimes you only see improvement after the second course. I've had a few patients who've had it done, and they tell me it really is valuable. The problem with Botox is it requires a physician to inject, and there are 31 different spots, and some potential side effects from using a nerve-blocking agent, including facial weakness and such. So, coming online is now a new series of drugs, which are called CGRP receptor blockers or antagonists. What is CGRP? I'll be real honest, I had to look it up this morning. That stands for calcitonin gene related peptide. And that is a substance, a peptide, a group of amino acids which serves as a headache trigger in susceptible people. If you're not susceptible, it doesn't do much of anything, but if you're susceptible, increases in the level of that will cause headache, particularly migraine. And so the use of these injectable drugs, of which I, I think they're going to be three on the market, basically is to act as a blocking agent an antagonist to block up the receptor sites. And so when someone gets a surge of CGRP, they either won't get a migraine or their chances of getting a migraine are much less. The effectiveness of these drugs, I gather, it could be at least 40 to 50 percent. So there will be a specific role for this drug in patients who have failed treatment with one or possibly two of the prophylactic agents and are still having their lives plagued and ruined by migraine. I believe that the treatment frequency of this is one subcutaneous injection every month. I'm not sure what the cost is. I do not think it will be cheap. I think that you could get an excellent dinner for four people at any of Fresno's wonderful restaurants for the actual cost of this medication. I think it's going to be about 500 or $550 a month. Will this be covered by insurance? I think for certain people who can demonstrate that A, they have migraine, B, they have chronic migraine that has not responded to other treatments and that their life is being disrupted and somewhat ruined, I think it'll be possible to get this drug for people. Uh, the Companies who have this are already taking a very competitive uh, view of this in cl- terms of uh, discount and other cards to cover the copay on this. The first of these drugs uh, is a drug called Amavig. That's the trade name. This is actually erenumab, E-R-E-N-U-M-A-B. Keep in mind that anytime you see a drug that on the end says M-A-B, that's short for monoclonal antibody. In fact, we've got lots of drugs that are monoclonal antibodies. Drugs that, properly selected, can do wonders for a great variety of very serious disorders. Uh, there are drugs of this type which are integral and important in the treatment, say, of Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Some of these drugs very important, very valuable for the treatment of rheumatoid disease and such. I am looking at the use of one of these drugs in terms of treatment for one of my patients with a fairly serious form of myasthenia gravis. Although as I look at the cost, I'm not sure how well that's going to work or what the coverage will be. I am, I've told the patient that we do need to wait for a study that is now being completed on this particular drug to, to show that there is benefit in order to promote the chances of his actually getting coverage for that. Regardless, uh, Amovig, I think, is the first of three drugs that are going to be CGRP receptor blockers, antagonists. And for selected patients who otherwise were having difficulty living the kind of life with the kind of quality that they want, this may be a real answer. Because let's say that you've got 15 headache days a month. If use of triptans is required, then you would need 15 doses of triptan a month. Well, the problem is if you use 15 doses of triptan a month, you may cause something called analgesic rebound headache. Almost any pain medication or other treatment for migraine can generate a secondary syndrome called chronic daily headache or analgesic rebound headache, which in fact is very common and a major reason why patients show up in physician's offices. But if with the proper prophylactic medication, You can lower 15 headaches a month down to perhaps half that or a third of that. Then as the residual headaches come through, you should be able to utilize, hopefully, your selected best choice triptan to deal with that headache and get back to living a reasonably decent life.
0: That's a lot of headaches in a month. I I mean, I get maybe one a month and... I I couldn't imagine those out there suffering with with Mm -hmm. anything more chronic than that. That's going to be tough.
1: One a month, in fact, is fairly typical. And one a month is the situation where a good family physician should be able to understand, recognize the headache, prescribe the appropriate triptan, and with that, if you respond to the triptan, then you convert an episode that could have ruined an entire day into an episode that interferes with life for about two hours.
0: So, do you see or do you hear with these types of drug treatment, if it Botox or the the CGRP or even just some of the oral medications that you spoke about, do you find that their treatment is longer? So, for instance, if you know you're taking it once a month, can it as you take it, does it you know spread out longer? Like maybe in a couple of years, you only have to do it once every three months, or once you get migraines, you got to keep on that keep on top of them.
1: Highly variable, highly variable. Probably the most common situation we have is someone who develops migraine in their mid to late teens to early 20s and then has it as a chronically recurrent problem over often several decades. There is a real tendency for the most common form of migraine in women that occurs starting the teens or 20s and then to Recede or even disappear as people go through menopause. So you can say good things about menopause, you can say bad things about menopause. One good thing you can say is that for many women, because they no longer have this hormonal surge on a monthly basis, they tend to have much less migraine. Interestingly, in older individuals, including women past migraine and some older men, there is another phenomenon which we need to know about, physicians need to be aware of, which is purely visual migraine in which patients may get visual disturbances which can only be explained by migraine but with minimal to no headache. Important to know about that as well because it used to be when people didn't understand that, people would be concerned that these were some form of transient ischemic attack, some form of stroke-like disturbance, that these were emerosis fujax, the artery syndrome of visual obscuration from embolization, and people would get diagnostic tests they didn't need, up to and including angiograms. Fortunately, most physicians understand this now, or if this comes across and it needs to be evaluated, patients can be sent for non-invasive studies. Uh, for example, there is a widely used test that I've been doing and interpreting for maybe 35 years called carotid duplex ultrasonography in which we use ultrasound waves to look at the interior of the carotid artery, which is just below the surface, and especially to measure blood flow. And with that, to define the presence or absence of stenoses, areas of narrowing that could be causing actual stroke or stroke-like symptoms. And so with that, there's every reason why if someone shows up with visual migraine and it sounds like that, that you can go ahead and confirm that that there's no carotid stenosis by a a carotid Doppler study. Uh, Almost all of the uh, cardiologists have this in their office. We have this in our office, which is a general medical office. St. Agnes runs a very good uh, accredited laboratory and has for years. Uh, As a matter of fact, I think for the moment I'm the medical director.
0: (laughs) You are? Yes. So, I mean, that brings on a good question. So somebody... Briefly, because I don't want to go into a whole other topic on stroke, but is there, can you give us just a couple things that somebody should watch for where they could be potentially having a stroke and not just a migraine?
1: Yes. This was part of a lecture which I often give formally or informally. And in fact, talking about stroke and warning signs was what was actually the first lecture I gave to our new incoming set of internal medicine residents. The short acronym to make patients aware of stroke or stroke-like symptoms was FAST, F-A-S-T. That stands for face, arm, speech, and time. In fact, recently we've modified that a little bit to BFAST, B-F-A-S-T. What's the B for? The B is for balance because there are certain patients who have stroke involving the rear of the brain in whom the major manifestation is sudden, unexplained, complete loss of balance, tendency to fall over to one side, can't stand up, may have other symptoms with it. So B for balance, particularly posterior fossa disturbances. F for face, asymmetries in facial movement, which can occur with stroke either over the cortex or in the brainstem. Arm, same location non nonspecific. That's where it's very easy to go ahead and assess someone for what we call pronator drift. Physicians should be able to do this. I think lay people can do this. Unfortunately, no one's going to be able to see this over a podcast. But imagine, put your arms out in front of you, palms up, close your eyes. When you open your eyes, you're going to see that your arms and hands are still there. But in the patient who has a subtle neurologic deficit, What the observer will see is that the affected arm, it will drop a little bit, it will rotate inwards, and it will flex at the elbow. This is what's called pronator drift, and this is often a subtle important sign that there's new weakness. Speech, two different types of speech disturbance. One is aphasia, in which you can hear that someone is having trouble finding words, trouble putting words into sentences, or trouble understanding you, that's aphasia. But there's also dysarthria, in which none of that is present. You can understand and the person can say things, but their speech is quite garbled or tight or whatever, or the rhythm is off, that's dysarthria. Two different types of speech disturbance. Finally, about that T, while well, speaking for myself as the medical director of a stroke program, speaking for Amir Khan, who runs the program downtown, Certainly speaking for Trilak Puniani, who's been the head of the very effective Kaiser stroke program uh, for many years, T means time. It means that if you're going to treat new onset ischemic stroke, stroke from lack of blood flow, with intravenous medications, you have three hours from the time of onset until you need to get that medication going. Under some circumstances, maybe up to four and a half hours. Beyond that, there are some other interventions which are have varied availability in this area uh, for catheter techniques where the time line may be longer but regardless the sooner you get in with a suspected stroke the better the chances are that the emergency room where you go not your doctor's office but the emergency room where you go will be able to recognize the problem run you very quickly through an evaluation mechanism have you seen by a neurologist, or under some circumstances by someone in utilizing teleneurology, which is the system at Kaiser, and which we're going to get at St. Agnes as well, and which is now in use downtown, and to make a decision rapidly and hopefully accurately in terms of who needs the intervention and where that needs to go. Very important. There is a crossover between complicated migraine as a, quote, stroke mimic, unquote, and true stroke, you can't always make the differentiation, as I mentioned with the case that we would had earlier. Regardless, if you think you're having a stroke, or you're in the presence of someone who looks like they're having a stroke, call 911. Arrange for ambulance transport. Take the patient, preferably to an emergency room that you know is equipped and trained to respond to stroke. That's absolutely certainly St. Agnes, where I've been director of the stroke program for six or seven years. Amir Khan downtown directs a program which has a similar duration of experience. The Kaiser program does very, very well. Go to a place where you know that they'll be able to respond appropriately and adequately.
0: Yeah, that's something you definitely Keep an eye out for that. And I've always heard the fast, but the, the B-fast is, is new to me. So that's good. Thank you for sharing that information. Is there anything else that you would, that you would recommend for somebody that even a first-time um, migraine sufferer or a chronic, I mean, somebody that, that may have already been established with their primary care as doctors? Is there a crossover of, you know, at what point do I see a neurologist?
1: Excellent thought. If you have a well-trained family practitioner and or internist, they should be able to handle the first stages of treatment. They should be able to recognize those occasions when maybe an imaging study is needed as opposed to not. They probably should be able to recognize that the problem is migraine and get you that first prescription of a triptan medication or other alternatives. At the point where someone may need consideration of prophylactic treatment, I think that's often where the neurologist or the headache specialist comes in. Some primary care physicians would feel comfortable uh, dealing with that, others not. So that is often the crux. Not everybody with migraine needs to see a, a neurologist. But as the issue of selecting and managing prophylactic treatment, whether it be medications, whether it be in particular one of these new injectable monoclonal antibodies like Amovig, that's probably where the neurologist is going to come in. I should mention there are a couple of neurologists in this area who do make a specialty practice of uh, headache and related disorders. Uh, These include my good friend uh, Kurt Miller. Kurt's been involved in headache matters for a long time. Melvin Helm uh, does a a specialty practice, uh, concentrates upon headaches and dizziness. And downtown, I believe that their specialist is a lady by the name of Ernestina Saxton. So we've got adequate resources in this area, uh, and many other neurologists who just happen to know a lot about migraine from A, years of experience, and B, because they have migraine themselves.
0: (laughs) A lot of people suffer from it for sure.
1: There are cocktail parties with neurologists in which people will discuss their migraine fortification spectra and such I think migraine is a little bit more common among neurologists
0: (laughs) makes sense I guess they can treat it the fastest as well correct well thank you I appreciate you coming in and and talking about this this subject I'm sure we'll have you back again to talk about other topics of the brain Um, but I appreciate you um, coming in today and talking about migraines
1: it's my pleasure and hopefully patients who have the disorder already under good treatment or realize that, yes, we have community resources, and they will go seek them out and get better.
0: Yeah, we do have some great doctors in town that could help you for sure. Thank you.